What kind? What kind of shark? It's a tiger shark. A what? Hello. Welcome to another episode of the Holmes Movies Podcast. Here with our top 10 episodes. We're back doing that. We're not talking about awards season or Oscar films or anything like that. No, we're back talking about our top 10 favorite films of each decade. Today, we're going to be talking about our top 10 favorite films of the 1970s, which I have to say was very difficult for the both of us. I'm joined over Zoom by my older brother, Adam. I mean, if, if we were doing a top decade of cinema, the 70s would have to be in the running. Yeah. And I could do quite comfortably, I could do a top 50 and still have fil- and still have some of my favorite films that I'd want to talk about from this decade. It has been almost impossible to put together a list that I feel happy with. Have to recognize that there are certain films of my, that are among my favorites that I can't put in for one reason or another. I also have to recognize that there are certain films of mine that I can't ignore that may not be actually the best films of the decade. So I'm trying to make a compromise list that both recognizes some of the real sacred, immortal cinematic masterpieces of that decade, while also um, making room for uh, making room for other movies. Yes, does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. Um... Yeah, I've I, I've had to rejig my list a little bit as well, also because of you know when I watched like a new film and I was like, oh, I really, oh, that's great, I got to put that, and then I have to like put another film down, and it's just been it's been tough. I mean, just before recording, I had to rejig my list a little bit after looking at it. It's just difficult. We can't put all the films in the top ten. No, you can't. Otherwise, it would be a very long podcast. Um, yeah. It's probably, yeah. probably, I mean, for the 70s, it's probably going to... I mean, I, I have, like, a top 50 list that I put together on Letterboxd, but I think it's probably going to turn into, like... It's a Letterboxd, right? Letterboxd, yeah. I mean, I just call yeah. it Letterboxd. I don't know why. I, call, I used to call it Letterboxd, but I'm pretty sure it's now Letterboxd. Yeah. But, yeah. But so I think you have me, a top 50 of the 70s. Yeah, I have a top 50 of the 70s, and then I've also done top 50 for the 80s, 90s, 2000s, and the 2010s. And I'm probably mm. going to do that for like the 60s and the 50s and all as we move down the decades. But yeah, I think for this, it's probably well, going to On my t- letterboxed, I have a top 70 of the 70s and there's still room on yeah. that list for other movies. Yeah, I think mine's going to turn into like a top 100 of the 70s because um, just there's so many good films from that decade that I really, really like. And, you know, some of them are very influential to me and also just inspirational and it's amazing there are those it was a great decade for movies it was a fantastic decade for movies yeah you should uh, my 70 from the 70s list is is a is epic um yeah, yeah there are some there it's, it's it's amazing some of the films that aren't um that i haven't been able to include um i'm pretty sure there's going to be a little bit of overlap because i can imagine some of the films that are in my top 10 will probably be in your top 10 as well towards the top of the list i can imagine there will be some overlap yeah i would say in the top three that's where we're going to overlap yeah it's normally how it happens isn't it but yeah hey ho let's see how it goes um i mean just a quick word on the 70s i mean it's like this is the decade where i mean one thing i will say I don't think I've ever had a list that's more like a top 10 that's more dominated by American movies. And I think in yeah. the in the next few decades and in the decades leading up to this, I have had and will have more foreign films or non, actually foreign, foreign films, uh, films not in the English language. This one is almost, ex- my list is almost exclusively made up of American movies because I think this is the great decade of American cinema. This is where American cinema reaches its zenith because the new Hollywood yeah. era. Yeah, but also you think you have a point where 
there are enough vestiges of old Hollywood left that it retains some of that magic, but it doesn't retain the strictures of Hollywood and of the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, where you have the studio system, where you have censorship, where you have a political conservatism, and you just get such a flowering of brilliant American films in the 70s. I mean, it's not saying that the films that came on before that were bad. It's just that they build on what's already um, happened to 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 make some really remarkable pictures. Now, the funny thing is that um, when at the end of the decade, because of Star Wars and Jaws and everything, um, you know, you you enter the age of the blockbuster. So actually, the conservatism kind of comes back because it starts to be all about making these these hits you know yeah and also you can kind of blame michael cimino and, and francis ford coppola for like studios coming in and reining in their filmmakers and saying yeah we do not need to do this shit okay we're going far over budget we need to have a little bit more control in how many films because it's like i mean I, I remember when reading peter biskin's book easy riders raging bulls which is um one of my favorite books about film history and i also would recommend his other film uh, sorry his other book uh, Down and Dirty Pictures, which is about the 90s American independent cinema boom, you know, with Sundance and Tarantino and all those filmmakers, you know, coming up and, you know, taking over Hollywood in that period. That's also another good book. But reading that book, Easy Ride of Raging Bulls, it, it was amazing. Like when it focused on different filmmakers, they would always have like a hit, like a first film that would be like a hit. And then the film and then the studios would be like, hey, we love that movie you you made us a lot of money go off and do something else and we'll stay back and that would happen for like a little bit of time but then they would have like a flop or a film that wasn't like critically acclaimed and then they would you know then they would sort of fall into obscurity and then the studios would have a little bit more control over their films and then by the time star wars and jaws came around and those were like huge big summer blockbusters and that was like those were that was like the beginning of the summer blockbuster sort of you know I was going to say pan. Yeah, I, mean, I, I was I was going to say pandemic, but no, it's like um, boom, the sort of summer blockbuster boom, and then you know by the end of the seventies, and then Apocalypse Now with Francis Ford Coppola's film, and how that got completely out of you know that was a very chaotic shoot, and you know Martin Sheen nearly died on the film because of a heart attack. I agree with you. The blockbuster boom, blockbuster uh, um, uh, plague that happens um, is. You know, it, I it shouldn't use the word pandemic. A plague is probably <laughs> well. It just it it's not even like it's not a disease. It's a it's a model of how to make money in cinema that suddenly takes hold. You 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 create films that you know are going to be or you yeah. know within a certain certainty are going to be a hit, and you market these um you know the excitement around them with toys and franchises and so on. And yeah, that has helped to ruin not ruin but certainly they've destroyed what made the 70s good which is that you had the very best people working with huge creative freedom on projects yeah. that were not guaranteed to succeed and in fact a lot of them didn't no. and um and there were some magnificent gambles that paid off jaws godfather and so on and then and you just don't see that as much anymore you see what yeah. the fuck is going on here with this pop-up ad sorry um i'm trying to like look at the movies while i'm talking about them yeah. um, so but like i mean the thing was is like you know i'm not i mean when i say jaws and star wars they were like big blockbuster hits the godfather that was also a big blockbuster hit so was the exorcist so was the french connection so was like easy rider that was also a big huge hit it was like a cultural phenomenon not, not from the 70s though yeah no, not no. from the 70s but it did start i mean they were all i mean you know 
it did start this this kind of trend but yeah absolutely i mean the godfather was the most um profitable film you know and when it was made and then it got surpassed by jaws and then it got surpassed by star wars and it's like each one of those gets any number of sequels star wars is still going they're still made they made a tv show about the god you know these things have become so big that not only have they spawned endless you know imitators and and a a new model of filmmaking that's built around the blockbuster they themselves are also still dominating the cultural landscape so yeah um was where where you went into the decade with the only real bankable franchise in the world of cinema, the only thing that looked like a sort of regular blockbuster that you could expect was the Bond franchise. I can't think of another one. No, no, there wasn't really, no. That's true. So that's, you know, and so by the time you come out of the 70s, you've got Star Wars, Jaws, Godfather, um, you, you're making Star Trek movies, you're making Superman movies, you know, there's... Batman, well, did they make a Batman movie in the seventies? Uh, no, that came in the eighties, but yeah, right. But you know, it's going, yeah, it's going in that direction. So, yeah. um, it is, it is. So, yeah. Anyway, that was probably quite enough about the decade as a whole. Let's go into the top ten. Yeah. Okay. Um. So, uh, wait, who started last time? Was it you or me? I can't remember. Okay. Uh, should I start? Um. Sure. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, uh, my. Number 10 film, my 10th film is Alien. So that was one of the ones that I heartbreakingly had to leave off my list. I'm very glad that it's uh, very glad that it's on yours. Yeah. I mean, I mean, so I good. this was like Ridley Scott's like second film, second or third film. Like he after did the, the duelists. He did the duelists um, beforehand and he was an advertisement and short film filmmaker beforehand. He did the duelists with Harvey Keitel and one of the Carradines. I can't remember which one. Keith. Teeth, okay. Um, and and then he did Alien, which was a huge hit. First time I watched Alien because I did because I, I feel like I mean, both of you and me, we we sort of did grow up knowing what was going to happen in the films, but still I was completely invested in the world and the world building and the mystery of every aspect of the film, especially when they come to the planet and they find the ship and you see that guy with like a chest and the eggs and everything. And I think that was really amazing. And also just the real, the the sort of industrial look of everything. Everything's crowded. Yeah. Everything is like grimy and gritty. And it just, you know, gave like a real sort of like bleak look at the future, even in 1979. That carried on into the film that he did afterwards, Ridley Scott Blade Runner. I mean, this movie has a great cast. Okay, so you got Yafet Koto, you got John Hurt, you got Ian Holm, you got Sigourney, Sigourney Weaver, who is a huge staple of the sci-fi genre. Harry Dean Stanton. Harry Dean Stanton, of course, and uh, Tom Skerritt. And, and also just like the way that it, it, it it's such a simple film, but there's like, there's such a great amount of mystery to it. It's like, what what why is the ship here like what is the alien and of course they've made prometheus and alien covenant which are prequels and well i was gonna say i was gonna say this is another one that spawned a franchise (laughs) yeah i know it did spawn a franchise another one that they're still making alien movies they're still making alien movies alongside the star wars movie no but it the first movie is incredible because as you say it's it's got an amazing cast and it's actually sort of a haunted house film or 
it's quite theatrical. Um, it's like a quite... it's like a slasher film in in many ways, and it well, not really a slasher film, but it does have that kind of right. like. And then there were none. It's like one by one, each crew member gets killed by this alien. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's not a who done it because you know who done it, but there are some twists along the way. And yeah, but they do a very good way of like they do the Jaws thing. They keep the alien hidden for most of the film, so it's like your imagination takes takes you know takes over. For, for the most part of it it's it it, it the movie re, you know it, it's built around atmosphere and suspense rather than gore and huge special effects which you know in the 80s that became a lot more prevalent no of course and and it's everything is done completely perfectly in alien and um i mean first i was lucky enough to see it for the first time on a big screen and at the prince charles cinema in fact and like you yeah i knew the thing about the chest buster i knew more or less the arc of the film but it's impossible not to be affected by it even when you know what's going to happen and what i think is astonishing is to think about going to the movies in 1979 watching this and not knowing what was going to happen I yeah you, that... didn't, you didn't you didn't have social media you didn't have people talking about it. i was like oh wait to the scene where they're sitting around the table you guys are gonna freak out like you know you didn't you didn't There's have probably it. some prat like that in the pub like yeah, you probably you know, had like a homer simpson walking out the cinema explaining that or something to live in a world where you don't know what happens to john hurt in alien that would be an amazing thing to actually go into that film completely cold and i don't i can't think of that many films that apart from like psycho is a like mm. hitchcock psycho that do that that, that that kill off someone that unexpectedly and that effectively 30 minutes into your movie yeah right and completely shifts your expectations so it's a, it's, a, it's a brilliant film it's uh, we could talk about it for hours but we should probably move on so at my number 10 i had to put one of my personal favorites um which is um a western uh, and it is uh, Duck You Sucker by Sergio Leone from uh, 1971, starring um, the one-of-a-kind scenery chewer himself, Rod Steiger, and James Coburn in one of his finest roles. Um, yeah. He was a very underrated is... actor, James Coburn. Well, I don't know that he's underrated exactly. I just don't think people know about him that much anymore. I mean, he he's pretty much, you know, he he... He always does the James Coburn thing. He's an incredibly cool actor. Yeah. Um, and um and I think that he I think that he nailed his kind of persona, if you want to call it that, uh, or his sort of style. He 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 got that really early and and really stuck to it, um, you know, in some of those early pictures. Um, but he's um you know he's a mature actor in this uh in this film um you know similar to pat garrett and billy the kid another great yeah, film. Yeah. and i was between those two i wanted to pick one but I, my favorite of those two i think is still duck you sucker just because it's so um gloriously sort of um big in its ambitions and it's uh you know, it's trying to make this big political statement about revolution and, you know, opens with a quote by Chairman Mao. It's like both manages to be like very left wing, but also very cynical about left wing politics and revolutionary politics. And it's, um, yeah, it's it's just a colossal uh, fun and, a very and, and underrated Sergio Leone film. And I, and if, and if anyone saying things are underrated, it's an underrated movie because every time when you think of like Sergio Leone, everyone goes like, Oh, the good and the bad and the ugly, or oh, once upon a time in the West. But no, if you haven't seen, if you've seen all those movies, watch Duck You Sucker and, or as it's formerly known as, A Fistful of Dynamite, watch that. Yeah, I don't, I don't love that title because it's like 
I think it was done for American audiences to try and pull in um, more I people. think the Italian title is Gila Testa, which is... No, it's Giula Testa, but yeah. Giula Testa, yeah. No, it's, which is a great title as well, because it sort of means keep your head down in, 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 in both, it's like both in terms of, you know, duck you sucker because people are shooting, but also because uh, politically it's important to keep your head down and stay out of the 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 crosswind so yeah um no it's a super interesting movie and the way it draws in the irish stuff as well and the and it you know makes a link between mexico and ireland and also you know you know more compellingly than a lot of um films that are set in that sort of revolutionary period in mexico really show how it was you know dominated by different factions and how you know there were lots of intellectuals involved and um you know just how violent it all was you know it's 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 not as um it's not as like unsubtle as for example the wild bunch which sort of depicts the mexican revolution in much more sort of stark like violent military terms um this this feels uh more nuanced um and um and i love the way that they draw parallels to to italy of course you know which is where the film comes from and um and yeah just i mean this is one of those ones where it's like yeah pat garrett and billy the kid probably a better movie um but i just wanted to put this one in there because yes i'll give you um i i normally don't worry too much about like what is or isn't overrated or underrated but yeah i think it is an underseen film i don't yeah. think people come to this one um first and foremost and nor should they necessarily but it is a i think it's a great uh sergio leone movie and and uh and yeah and just so much uh there's a lot of heart in it you know yeah that's true so yeah, my number nine is the only Martin Scorsese film that uh, manages to break into my top ten, and that is uh, Taxi Driver. I remember I I was in boarding school in England, and uh, I did have a bit of a reputation of having a lot of DVDs, and people would borrow films from me now and again. And one of the films I did have in school at one point was Taxi Driver, and one of my friends in my house asked me like what film would you recommend and i was like um i've got taxi driver it's a great film classic and uh, he went off to watch it and uh, he came back to me and he said it was boring and i asked him okay why because in my head i was like what 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 i mean i again someone told me that he thought that uh, the godfather was overrated but that's a different conversation for another time and i so i said okay what did you find boring about taxi driver and i was like nothing happens in the film throughout the whole film and i was like quite a lot happens in the movie you know what i mean i, I was think like, he might have been what did he did he watch it like did he put the dvd in wrong or something and just watch a blank screen like what? i don't know it's like because i feel like in my head a lot happens in taxi driver yeah it's not like a big action heavy film because it is it is about a, a vigilante who gets guns and you know it's ptsd and all that but there's a lot that happens in that film. It's it's not like nothing. I think if you if you look at it, if you know like three film things about that film, which is like Robert De Niro's in it, it's set in New York and there are lots of guns in it, you might imagine that it's something closer to like Death Wish with Charles yeah, Bronson. Yeah, of course. I think what's so great about Taxi Driver is it shows the way in which actually this kind of vigilantism is not just incredibly problematic and violent, but also very mundane. Like it's not actually particularly heroic or glorious it's yeah. just yeah. this is you know it's as it's as upsetting as the world that he you know attacks at the end of the film it's such a it's so much more of a like smart and genuine approach to um looking at sort of the the, the world of urban crime than something as 
reactionary as Death Wish or Dirty Harry or you know any other films. That yeah, you which kind mention. of glorifies vigilantism. Or even something like you know Escape from New York or something like that, where it's like just you know making it absurd. You know, whereas this is it shows how yes there is a lot of uh, seediness and depravity on the streets of New York and a lot of violence, but you know also that the, that this goes hand in hand with you know the polit- you know the, polit- the political side and mm. also that a lot of it is just the interpretations of a particular individual who just you know who who decides to see nothing else but the the misery the, the, the horrible the, the, side of things the prostitution the crime the 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 rain i mean bernard herman's score in this movie is fantastic i think it's just one of his best scores just really just fits the tone of the movie and de niro is fantastic it's one of his best performances it's such a great character study and also Peter Boyle is great. Jodie Foster is wonderful. Harvey Keitel, um, who plays her pimp in the film. Like, it's a sort of, a, it's an interesting representation of where New York was in that time. Because, I, I mean, if you watch, like, the Marathon, like, Marathon Man and any film set in New York in the 1970s, it's like playing Grand Theft Auto. It's, like, such a, like, crime-ridden place. And it was dirty and just crazy. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of, as I say, like, Yes, New York was a dangerous place and all that in the 70s. And there was a lot of crime and a lot of uh, corruption, a lot of economic um, crisis and stuff. Yeah. But I also think that, um, you know, I think that there's, I think if, if you see that as the only feature of New York at that time or at any other time, I think you're not seeing the full picture. And I think that's the thing that is the problem with, with, um, you know, Travis in this film is that he he is just completely obsessed with the the grime and the crime. And, and so... Um, you know, and and it's really interesting that you look at how, like, again, thinking about the politics of of this stuff, like how nowadays the the world of right wing politics is dominated by Travis Bickles. I would not want to see Travis Bickles' Twitter page. No, no, I would not either. And and I'm sure he would be on some very other, a lot of other strange websites too. I mean, and that's the thing I think that's so great about this film is how Scorsese identified something in the 70s that was growing and that has just remained true and blossomed into new and more insidious uh things uh, since then you know and 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 i think it is such a again it's you know talking about this is like the decade of american cinema and this is such an american film and that you know what it exposes about the american character um and you know and, and and the fact that he's so open about um being inspired by um the searchers and ethan edwards and mm. how there's this through line between these two you know, violent characters. It's it's just so it's so great. Um, yeah, it's a wonderful film. Paul Schrader's screenplay is fantastic. Yes, no. So, um, and I agree on the Bernard Holmes. I agree with everything you said. Um, yeah. So, my number nine is, uh, for once, not an American film. Um, it is it has got the word American in the title, though. It's the American Friend by um, Vim Vendors. It's 1977. Um, still feels very mid 70s it doesn't feel like a film it feels like it's just right in the sweet spot of this decade and I really there is so much good European cinema at this time and that's why it's such a shame that more of these um, I wish I could put more of these movies in my um, in my top 10 now I haven't seen that many for example by Chantal Ackerman maybe if I'd seen uh, more of her more of her movies then then there would be more in my but um, you know like the uh, the one with the long title that just got the, to the top of the site and sound pole. But um, but I really like how Europe comes across in 1970 cinema. I really yeah. uh, appreciate the the way it's, you know, we've now moved into the, tr- tr- you know, p- beyond the post-war period into the kind of 
20th century and all that that entails. And I love the way that European cinema at this time is often so, um, you know, it shows you, you know, stuff going on in multiple countries and, and the American friend is no exception, you know, and that brings you all the way to New York, but it um, it spends time in Paris, it spends time in various bits of Germany, especially Hamburg, and the way it makes use of the locations is is brilliant. Great cast. Uh, I do Bruno think- Bruno Gans, Dennis Hopper. Yeah. Sam Fuller and Nicholas Ray. Yeah, right, exactly. In fact, you get Sam Fuller and Nick Nick Ray in the same film is great. But um, Bruno Gans is is just mesmerizing in this. Uh, it's Hopper's good too, but yeah. um, it's really Bruno Gans's movie. And um, oh, he, he's one of the he's one of the truly great actors, and and he's the just the amount of um, poignancy in his performance in this film is so. Um, it's it's so skillful um, he, he carries and... a lot on his face i feel he, yeah. the whole character is there in his eyes and his facial expressions and i think he's it's it's hang dog is it's a good way of putting it truly a, a magnetic performance he's he's incredible in it and um it's got wonderful music it's got brilliant just brilliant cinematography um and um you know it's a pretty good little thriller too while you're at it i mean it's yeah. not not a sort of pulse you know again i think your friend who borrowed taxi driver probably wouldn't like probably uh, would have this clicked film. off halfway through <laughs> yeah probably would have thought this was pretty boring as well but it's um it is a it, it, again it's that sort of way in which a lot of the thrillers of the 70s um or films that deal with crime and violence manage to do that by being sort of unsettling rather than being sort of in your face yeah uh, you know thinking of thinking of the conversation and by uh, francis ford coppola as well you know so um, I, I think that um, I think the American Friend really fits in neatly to seventies um, thrillers, and I'm guessing a lot of people won't have seen it. So I'm I'm privileged and pleased to put it on this yeah. um, on this list, and hope that hope that others will enjoy it uh, to the same extent. Um, what um, what about you? Yeah. What your, what's it, oh, well, your, I guess it's number eight now. Uh, yeah, it's a number eight. Uh, my number eight is a film that's com- the p- the complete opposite of some of the films that we've talked about already. And it's a film I've seen fairly recently that managed to scrape its way in there because of its themes and also just how, like, you know, awe-inspiring the film is. And that is Rocky. Sylvester Stallone uh, wrote the screenplay to Rocky. He had $103 to his name when he sold the screenplay and um, it turned him into a, into an absolute stu- superstar. He had Rocky, he had Rambo, and it was like, you know, the 70s and the 80s were like a real high point, uh, high point for him. And then the 90s were a little bit touch and go, like a lot of those, you know, big action-y stars. But the great thing about Rocky is that it's a really great inspirational movie. It's an underdog story. It's a rags to riches film. It's a, you know, it's about the, you know, it's the film about the American dream and wanting to, you know, just get on top and, you know, by punching people, by punching people, but also just like, you know, trying to raise yourself out of poverty and trying to, you know, be yeah. better than yourself. And it's like, and, you know, there's a great speech in, the, in in Rocky Balboa, the sixth film, where he's like, it ain't about how hard you can hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and get back up and keep moving, keep moving forward. 
And I think that whole aspect of it is really inspirational for not just for boxing, but for for anything really. And I mean, Stallone. I mean, we can make fun of Stallone of his voice, and oh, we will. <laughs> yeah, but like, I mean, I did find out he he was born. There were some complications with his birth, so one side of his face does droop. So that's why he does have that kind of like kind of voice. So you know, okay. So we're not allowed to make fun of him. Anymore. Yeah, we're not allowed to make fun of him. But you know. He's great in the film. I think he's. I think people. I think kind of people underestimate him a little bit, and um, you know, he really adds a lot of his personality and his personal life into the into the Rocky films. And I can understand how personal this character is to him. And he has gotten into a little bit of a battle with, you know, some of the rights and the control of the character, and that's you know, the, the, that's a whole different story. But no, his performance in the movie is great. There's one scene with Burgess Meredith who plays uh Mickey who's is you know this raggedy old like coach like get up Mickey <laughs> I didn't hear the bell and um who 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 comes to him and says he wants to train him because Apollo Creed this uh, uh this boxer played by Carl Weathers who most people will know from the the Mandalorian who plays um oh fuck I forgot his name in in the, the Mandalorian uh his friend the, yeah, guy the, black, the black guy i've forgotten his name oh no anyway he's the one who's the mayor of the planet yeah no, uh, navarro i've forgotten his name uh magistrate uh, he's a, uh, anyway it doesn't matter he says like i i i want to you know i want to give like a guy a chance to take on the champ i like this guy's name the italian stallion let's get him and you know rocky's you know he 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 then sort of there's a moment where like he he kind of confronts Burgess Meredith's character and it sort of lets out all this frustration and it's really really moving like there's I mean I've, there's so many moments in these movies where you're just so like moved and just that kind of like manliness and it's just it's very touching in a lot of ways and and manliness <laughs> it's just it's, it's great like, do, much, do you mean like you're moved by the sheer machismo of it a little bit and also just the themes as well and just you know. I mean, Talia Shire, who plays his love interest, Adrian, she's wonderful in the film. And she has a great arc throughout all the films. She just starts off as like this very meek and quiet woman. And then she kind of builds to be this independent and keeps him very grounded and also manages to like push him forward and keep him, you know, tell him. I mean, you know, I mean the way you're describing it, I mean, I've not seen it, but it is, it's not like, I guess one of the things is we've seen so many films like this since, but it, you, I mean, we're not talking about a particularly controversial style of storytelling. No. Do, you, do you feel like the films are, I mean, you talk about like manly, you know, they're all about sort of manly feelings and machismo. So it's like, is it, do you think that these films are in any way kind of dated, like in terms, are they, in terms of the gender politics and just the general politics of the films or, um, like yeah, I mean, maybe in a lot of ways they are a bit dated because I feel like any boxing movie or any sports movie is going to have a lot of the same beats. And but I feel like with this one, it kind of this this one sort of had. I mean, they each of the Rocky films follows the same sort of formula and it works, and they use it to their advantage in a lot of ways. Not so much with Rocky Five, which isn't that great. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's always yeah, especially when you, every time when you do these movies, you always are going to like fall into. Con you know, comparing and comparison it to like other films, but um, no, I, I mean, I like these movies a lot. I mean, I've become a bit of a fan, and it's um, yeah, yeah. But no, they're wonderful. That you really should watch watch the first one at least. I'm sure I will. Uh, I'm sure I will check it out and um, 
I mean, it is, yeah, it's 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 very much kind of a cultural phenomenon, the whole franchise. But again, right. Yeah. Um, I it's more yeah, like for a run. You just want to like, dirt, dirt, dirt. yes. Um, like Rocky IV, there's like one song was like, Hearts on Fire, Strong, oh makes, you, makes you want to run up, run up a mountain and be like, Drago. <laughs> I really think you have, uh, you have fully drunk the Rocky Kool Aid and it's very amusing. Um, but, um, I think it again, it's like, yes, this does create an enormous franchise. And um, I also think the Eddie Murphy bit about the Rocky movies is very, very funny. Oh, yeah, it's, um, it is very funny. That is true. Um, and I think uh, once you've had a chance to uh, process your, you know, whirlwind journey through the franchise a bit, you might be able to look at some of the ways in which the uh, the, the, the ridiculousness of some of the imagery that comes to us from that franchise. But um, I think what's the really interesting lesson in this is that yes, it's born. You get a massive franchise out of it, just like with Star Wars, just like with Alien or with The Godfather, and all. And the common thread here is people taking a chance on more or less unknown yeah. talent with a property that has no reason why it should succeed, and that's why, you know, that's kind of the story of the seventies, and that's what. And then by the time, we, as I say, we come out of it, Hollywood's decided it's got enough of these, so it doesn't need to do any more taking of chances. And uh, it's such a shame because, yeah, you do get from that some pretty good films. Anyway, if I can tear you away from your Stallone... Uh, he should, best, have, won, he should have won the Oscar of that year when he was nominated for Creed. I'm this so is not an alternative I'm sorry, Oscar Mark Rylance. I'm sorry, Mark Rylance, but Stallone did deserve the Oscar for Creed that year. With, this is not an alternative Oscars podcast. Yes. We can come back to that. Yeah. Um, I um, have, where are we on the list? Number, number eight, eight, you're number eight. Okay, so I have to pick. I've put some um, different choices down here. Um, but um, I think I'm going to have to go uh, with um, dum, 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 Days of Heaven by Terrence Malick. Um, Ooh, that didn't quite make the list. Which is okay, cool. I'm glad that there's no so far there's no overlap. Um, this very um beautiful Edward Hopper inspired sort of um bucolic uh gothic tale of um the depression and um you know hard work and mm. uh grifters and crime and love and murder and um Bit of murder. And just, just how just a beautiful, beautiful film and um I you mean, know, the all, way all of Terrence Malick films are beautiful. Yeah, but they're not all good. Um, <laughs> that's true. That's true. And uh, and this is uh, and this one is both. Um, and the and it's also mercifully short. It's ninety four minutes. Actually, it's not set in the Depression. It says here it's set in nineteen ten. So it's just it's just hard times. But um, it's got that wonderful, wonderful performance and narration from Linda, the late Linda Manns. Um, who plays um, this amazing kid in this film? Uh, who's this, this? This sort of she plays a, a character called Linda. I, I suddenly I had to look it up, you know. But she's she's the the sort of spectator, to, but also um, the core of the film in some ways. Um, and and then you've just got these you know very ordinary um, movie stars in the main parts, Richard Gere and Brooke Adams, neither of whom are great actors, but they do such good work uh, in this. Um, 
in this movie and then Sam Shepard is uh, is amazing too and it's just such a the film is just such a mood you know it's such a, a an evocative yeah. um portrayal of a, of a place and a time and um I love how much it's uh, sort of inspired by the paintings of that era and how it uh, picks up a lot of the um filmmaking styles of um you know people like um Andrei Tarkovsky and 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 stuff like that in the Soviet Union you know, it's a very different feel than most American films it allows itself to be much slower much more uh, contemplative and um you know you could have you could have picked Badlands I guess because that comes out in the 70s doesn't it but I think that um but I, I do really think that uh, Days of Heaven is a is an astonishingly um just a, a good film um I, I i do think somewhat better than than badlands and, and certainly just more man, majestic um for want of a better word and um well, he's working with a bit more of a budget in, in this film than he was in badlands i guess yeah and I, I guess you can tell um but it's um it's still you don't that i think there are images in this film that you just never 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 forget and and i've and it's like how to make fields and vistas that don't contain much beyond the sort of agricultural come alive in the same way that you know this it's it's like he's John Ford filming Monument Valley except you know it's just grass and 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 corn yeah <laughs> it's, uh, it's really um it's really impressive um and the, um, uh, the cinematographer Nestor uh, Almendros this was uh, one of his I think one of his last films that he did as a cinematographer because he was going blind. Oh no! Yeah, he was he was going blind through pro during production, and before each shot, he would have an, an assistant that would take a picture with a Polaroid camera, and then they would view it under a high power powered magnifying glass. Uh, okay, cool. I've just looked up Almendros. He he doesn't have a bad CV either, so a lot of good European cinema. But no, I think it's it, it, this film would be nothing without the cinematography. That's fair to yeah, say, yeah. Um, and. Um, yeah it's just it it is a visual feast even though you know because the plot is relatively like mm -hmm. you know standard um but i won't give it away because it's actually still really worth checking out so um what do you got next what do you got uh, it's not an al pacino film um no uh so yeah my next one is um a little bit different from the movie that you just uh you just talked about um are you familiar with a man called Irwin Allen? The name rings a bell. Why? So he was a director and a producer. He mostly worked in uh, science fiction. He was later known as the master of disaster for his work in the disaster film genre. And the film that is on my list next is one of the films that he worked on. And that is The Poseidon Adventure. Oh, another one I've not seen. I'm really glad we're getting some good films out here. So why is The Poseidon Adventure in the top 10 1970s films? I'm curious. Here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Okay. 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 Disaster films, for me, are good fun. I, I love them. Oh, yeah. Special, special effects, all that stuff. But also, I think with this one, you got great characters. you got people to sort of, you know, you want them to succeed. You really relate to them. And, and, you, and also, this film is stacked. you got Ernest Borgnine. you got Red Buttons. you got Roddy McDowell, Shelley Winters, Leslie Nielsen. Gene Hackman is great in this movie as this uh, reverend who has very sort of differing ideals of Christianity and he's forced to go to some African commune by his church. And then he's the guy that kind of leads the sort of the, the survivors who try to get to the hull of the ship after it's been pushed over um, by a tsunami. 
and it's just really good fun and it's just you know you really feel like you're in the ship and it's just so realistic all the characters are very well written and they're not like stock characters they feel very you can really relate to them like i've said but they're three-dimensional there's a, there's a lot of nuances to them and it's just it's a it's a fantastic movie it's so good it, i think it was on the criterion channel at one point yeah i've always i don't know why i've never taken the plunge i guess is the, um, but um i mean you look at the cast it's hard to argue with I, th that became a real thing at this time to do like yeah. you know you had the, the big war movies with the ensemble cast but then they started doing the big disaster movie with the ensemble cast like, yeah i mean um, owen allen he produced quite a lot of them yeah there was like there was airport with uh burke lancaster dean martin james yeah. seberg jacqueline Bissett, george kennedy and then you had earthquake which had Charlton Heston, Ava Gardner, George Kennedy again. Richard. Okay, and we can't go through all the cast of all the disaster yeah, films. Yeah, yeah. and then you had the tower. will turn off the podcast. And then you had the towering Inferno as well, which was an also which was also a film that Erwin Allen produced, and that had pretty much everybody from Steve McQueen to Paul Newman to William Holden, Faye Dunaway to O.J. Simpson. Okay, now you're just doing it again. <laughs> Um, talking about different films and just reading their cast, which is not interesting. And also, um, John Williams did the music on Poseidon Adventure and uh, and also The Towering Inferno. I did not know that. Um, okay, cool. It sounds like it's a thrilling um, film with a great cast. And yeah. um, Gene Hackman was Gene Hackman was nominated for the film. No, no, he wasn't. Sorry, Shelley Winters was nominated for the film, but Gene Hackman is very great in in the movie. Um, it did seventies the seventies is like the hackman decade let's yeah. be honest yeah the french connection hackman is like he, All the, the, he, he owns this decade i mean he took the conversation night moves french connection as you say this film superman like he's everywhere <laughs> i love that um, so cool um so i'm going to do my number seven now and i'm faced with another agonizing choice um but i'm going to um go with milos foreman's one flew over the cuckoo's nest also on my list but it's a little higher up ah, okay well i won't go into it uh too much then we can talk about it when you get to it uh what is your number what are you on now six number six yeah my number six is mel brooks's young frankenstein you're very much in the like 70s as entertainment vehicle <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, young. I'm not going to argue. Young Frankenstein is brilliant. Your approach to the 70s, as it and and I think as it as it, it mirrors brilliantly your approach to film in general, is so fundamentally focused on enjoyment, value, and entertainment. Yeah. Uh, like, I feel like so far, if I were a person who was interested in just like having a great fucking time, your list would be more interesting, you know, more uh, accommodating than my one. Um, I do not agree that <laughs> Young Frankenstein is in the top 10 best movies of the one of the best decades in the history of cinema, but that's yeah. fine. Uh, it uh, is a hilarious, hilarious it film. It is a hilarious film. I don't know. I just, I remember when we were at film school and we watched this film around the same time when Eric Idle, no, not Eric Idle, uh, Gene Wilder had, par had passed away. I don't know why I was thinking. Yeah, Eric Idle very much still alive. He's very much, he still is kicking. No, but it was when Gene Wilder passed away. We watched this. We watched Willy Wonka, which is also further down my uh, list on Letterboxd. Um, and also The Producers, which is also a wonderful oh, film. So good. It, Mel so Brooks good. is... Uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure that will make its way into the yeah. 60s list somewhere. 
But also, I think in the way that it spoofs the 1930s monster movie genre and does it in a way that you really it respects the genre but also really does poke fun in it in a very playful not in a sort of like poking down to it like talking down to the genre it sort of respects it while also kind of poking fun at fun at it in a very jovial sort of manner and i think gene wilder is wonderful like the whole like it's frankenstein is just i mean that's one of the funniest jokes ever yeah what knockers <laughs> as well the whole idea that in the mid 70s that you should be parodying the universal monster films of the 30s is such an inspired choice um i think it's a i think it's as good as blazing saddles at least i, I actually think i prefer it um to blazing saddles i think it's it it just as you say it completely nails the the genre um kind of lampooning and it, and and as you say it's done without all the jokes without... are great all the jokes yeah. man they're so funny like everything is done so like in brilliantly it's like it's so straight faced they say like the whole like with Cloris Leachman as Frau Blucher when she goes Ovaltine I just think that is hilarious like every time when they say Blucher and the horses whine or do something in the background yeah. that's still it still makes me laugh. And also like Marty Feldman's character is, you know, is Igor. So good. It's just, that is comedy. That is physical comedy genius. Like his whole, what he does with his body and his face is, is amazing. And his chemistry with Gene Wilder is so funny. And just the whole like <laughs> Abby something or other <laughs> ab normal brain. <laughs> just, Oh my God. So and the, the werewolf their wolf um their yeah, castle. <laughs> but also <laughs> and also madeline khan as elizabeth like she was an absolutely funny woman like she was so great madeline khan and terry gar is in this film as well yeah, so yeah. Just... would you like to rule in the hay rule, rule, rule. <laughs> um it's uh, it, yeah it's such fun to watch in a group it's so um it's it's so full of the one-liners. I feel like that it's the 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 great thing about the Mel Brooks films is you can start to look forward to the lines when they come. I mean, that's, yeah, yeah. You know, his his. I think th- there's a bit of a reputation with Mel Brooks for maybe being a bit like, a, like there's it's a lot of shtick and yeah. and I think yes, there's a hell of a lot of shtick, but there's also just like genuine like wit in in this and it's and and the and the filmmaking skill is is as you say is on display because you can't make a parody like this without being good at uh at making uh at making they movies. use all this they use all the sets from the original movies which yeah. is great it's stuff like that and just having the smarts to like do that get the cinematography right it's uh it's um really spot on so good choice uh what as next on my list is um this is your number six right my number six is Barry Lyndon, uh, directed by Stanley Kubrick. Um, but Barry Lyndon, for me, is one of the best films of the 70s. It's right there in the sweet spot, mid-decade, 1975. It is a, again, not peopled with the most brilliant actors you're ever going to see in your life. Like Ryan O'Neill, not a great actor. I think Marissa Berenson is in the film because she was... Uh, involved with Stanley Kubrick, let's just be honest. Um, and um, it is, it, 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 it's not like, you know, a film where you're looking at this being like, wow, these Shakespearean performances, but it is a just mind-blowing piece of filmmaking. Like the... the it's a cinematographer's the, wet dream, that movie. Right. I mean, and this is the thing. I know that the last couple of films I picked, like you look at 
days of heaven you look at this you know it's very heavy on the whole cinematography thing but why the hell not we're talking about movies we're talking about how you can be visually stimulated by a film as well as being sort of stimulated by the drama of it and Barry Lyndon's got loads of drama I mean that's the great thing Mm. about this film is it's also this madcap kind of picaresque journey through 18th century Europe um with this utter scoundrel at the heart of it um you um you know he he experiences all these different things it's a great kind of look at that time i mean it, it gets this evocation of of a particular time yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, just as as malik does in in days of heaven but um i uh i just think it's it's really well known for two reasons i mean i think it's the um the cinematography and the use of music yeah. both of which evoke the 18th century more than I think any other treatment that I've ever seen, the way he weaves in the the, the, the classical music and does this, um, you know, this incredible work to get actual like candlelight uh, and the effects of candlelight onto um, onto the screen. Um, mm. And of course, there's great exterior shots and wonderful battle scenes. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the costumes are, are like just divine um, and. Um, yeah, there's you know, lots, lots, lots more to, to come to this film for, but it's um, yeah. I just think it's it's impossible to disregard. It's it's uh, it's Kubrick at his um, at his best, and I just couldn't like I thought about like oh is it is this like an you know could I think of a more romantic choice? Could I do a you and like maybe get more of my like you know put in one of my uh, cherished films that's not as good but i just feel like this has to be in there somehow because it's it's such a it's such a show of what can be done and remember he's doing this outside of hollywood at this point you know he's yeah because uh this i'm imagining that this film came right after a clockwork orange so yeah it's very different from that movie oh yeah i don't know where it yeah it's interesting to think where it sits in his history and it's it's so compelling to think about what would have happened if he had been able to bring his napoleon project to fruition but there's a bit of a uh, james bond connection because all the production design is done by ken adam oh fuck i'd forgotten about that who also worked with uh uh, i was about to say scorsese he worked with kubrick on uh, dr strangelove that's right of course and all Um, and all the 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 lenses um were designed by nasa all the camera lenses that's right. Yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff like that. And I was like, um, that was the way that they were able to do the natural light cinematography. Yeah, the lighting that I don't often talk about lighting when I talk about films, yeah. but my goodness, the the lighting in this is 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 sublime. Yeah, I'm I'm so glad that they like invented a new lens for this film. It's it's, yeah. it's I just I feel like the 70s is full of stories like that. Like they had to build a factory in Germany to produce Pink Floyd records and stuff like that. You know, like you don't hear stuff like that nowadays. They I love that sort of like we had to make this movie. We didn't know how to film it by candlelight, so we asked NASA to make us a le- like. That's a wonderful story. I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, feels like of a, of a different time um barry linden is amazing and i don't think you could you would make it the same way now you couldn't make you couldn't make a film like that now you can only make it as like a mini series right but it, and it, it really for me it feels similar to some of those like epic russian um or yeah, Soviet like, yeah like tarkovsky or bundeshock 
yeah Bondachuk I was thinking of yeah with War and Peace so um well, was it was tuned, didn't but... he do Waterloo was that him he did yeah uh, the very less very good weird. less good than yeah. his Soviet efforts uh, the last thing I will say about Barry Lyndon is that you can take any image from that film and turn it into a painting yeah I mean it's it's a little annoying the way that gets done on Twitter where it's like look at this painting from the 18th century and look at the film and say yes that's the point but yeah that's that's how how good it is is that really it's shot for yeah. shot everything is his um and and because that was the visual language of the time was uh was painting you know the, this uh, that's how we how the 18th century visually comes down to us outside yeah, of yeah. the architecture that's left from that time so why not um yeah it's a uh, it's a terrific film. So what have you got next? What's your, I guess we're number five now. Yeah, we're at number five. We're in the top five. So my number five is Chinatown. Oh, it's higher on my list. So why don't we come back to it? Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. So, One of, yeah, we'll get back to it in a second. But yeah. Yeah, my, I think my, um, my number five might be on your list. This is one of those ones that I put in because I was like, okay. You're going to get a lot of overlap, I feel now. Yeah. This is one of those films where I'm like, I have to have this because it's one of my favorites, and it's Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye. Um, The Long Goodbye is directed by Robert Altman. We have talked about it. The Long Goodbye. Yes, you do that every time. I think people are starting to get deja vu now. 1973, Philip Marlowe adaptation. uh, Sorry, it's an adaptation of um, The Long Goodbye. Chandler's Long Goodbye. It has um, Elliot Gould as Philip Marlowe, it has Sterling Hayden. Um, it has playing uh, Ernest Hemingway, yeah, basically. Uh, well, or Sterling Hayden. Talking about Sterling Hayden for a second, there's a book of his where apparently, like, he went on like a big sailing adventure with like yes, his. I have that. I have that. I, I really want to read that. It sounds amazing. Yeah, I'll, I'll lend it to you. It's called Wanderer. Um, yeah, yeah, the Wanderer. Not, yeah, yeah. I've read it all the way through. Um, it. Yeah, he's he's an amazing personality, and he's he's wonderful in this movie. Um, and yeah, as you say, he plays this kind of Hemingway character. Nina Van Palland is in it. Um, yeah, it's just a curious film in many reg- in many regards because it's not really it doesn't give you a lot of <laughs> in terms of um, uh, satisfaction, I guess, in a lot of ways. But it is um, because you know it's yeah, it's based on this. It's still based in that world of Chandler, where you know there kind of aren't a lot of good outcomes for a lot of people but yeah um and the central problem of the film never gets solved which yeah. is what happened to the damn cat yeah i know you never get yeah it just it's a sad spoiler aspect alert. of that film yeah spoiler alert yeah i lost a damn cat but but, but you know the, the, obviously it's got a great plot it's very interesting as a sort of neo-noir kind of uh mystery but really the film is just about how goddamn cool it is and yeah I, I love elliot gould's laid back no bullshit performances as as uh philip marlowe i think he's just he's i mean along with dick powell he's one of my favorite incarnations of that character yeah i think this is this is up there with the very best of them um you know with bogart and powell for sure it's 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 um you know interestingly this is an example of the 70s like with you know there's kind of two things that happen in the 70s right well three there's just original films that are stunning and stand on their own like days of heaven then there's films that you know create a franchise that echoes into our own time and then there are films like this one and 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 uh young frankenstein that reach back into old hollywood yeah and i love the way that 
the film noir, the private detective genre is brought into the sun-drenched 70s Los Angeles and the way that Altman uses it to poke fun at, you know, hippie culture and all this other stuff. It's it's just such a fantastic film to spend time with. Yeah. And um, again, like, cinematography is great. The, the, the Vilma, script... Vilma or, Sigmund. Yeah, Sigmund is, is, is incredible. The music... Um, Really, as you just uh, uh, delighted the listeners with. Goodbye. And um, yeah, uh, just I think maybe one of the coolest films of all time. Um, yeah. Certainly, uh, you know, in contention. Um, and I think a big influence on uh, the Big Lebowski. Yeah, I think so too. It, it does. It does. It's, it's one of those movies that came out in this period, and it did carry a little bit into the eighties as well with films like Cutter's Way, where it did have these sort of noir films with like had this, and also Night Moves as well. That these movies, these noir films yeah. that had that bit of cynicism about America and where the country was. They're almost a little bit stoned or something. They're yeah, just like, they're yeah. stuck. They're like, I mean, if you look at the last frame of night moves it's like all these characters are kind of lost in a spiral yeah yeah um night moves is a, is a good companion piece to this film it's not as good but it's definitely in the same yeah vernacular um and um yeah no um i think it's um if you haven't watched uh, robert altman's the long goodbye you're in for an absolute treat what is next on your list so yeah my number four we're at number four right just double checking I guess so. Yeah. Yeah, because we're your because my number five was Chinatown, but I guess we're going to talk about yeah, that. Yeah, so we'll come back to that. Yeah. yeah. So my number four is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Okay, great. So um, let well, why don't I say my piece and then uh, yeah, you, you say you, you say your piece. I'll I'll say mine. Yeah. Um, Milos Forman, obviously a brilliant Czech director. Um, this is one of his first American films, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I be- I believe so. It is probably his first American film. I'll double check that. Um, Again, it has, um, you know, so many of the the hallmarks of what for me makes some of the great American films of the seventies. You know, a great cast, uh, um, a more raw approach to a subject that has been perhaps covered before, but never this this way, and um, you know, a, a a an approach to the narrative that feels free and therefore gives the film a sense of um, unpredictability and lightness and. Mm-hmm joy even amongst the the suffering of it like there's something there's something so freeing about so much of the best of 1970s cinema whether it's star wars or whether it's the Godfather, you know because it's like you just feel like this could go anywhere and like the scope is endless and i i think the this the the depth and the richness of of one flew over the cuckoo's nest and just how moving it is um just yeah it gets me every time it really is a, a um a, a, a brilliant film and jack nicholson who um, we're going to talk about again with with chinatown mm. i mean he's just like again just like if, if, yeah he there are so many actors in the 70s who do very well nicholson is one of them you can talk about hackman and pacino and others but like yeah, yeah, yeah. Jack nicholson the, the so a couple of his basically most iconic most important performances come out of it and i don't know that there's a more important one than this have you ever by the way seen his acceptance speech from the BAFTAs which he won for I think yeah, it was it was it was for it was for China he does it from the set yeah he does this, it from the set oh. yeah yeah that's true. didn't he I, then win the Oscar for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest he did win the Oscar for yeah that was his first Oscar and of course that's not all because you have um 
you have uh, what's her name? Um, Louise, Louise Fletcher. Yeah, Louise Fletcher is brilliant as Nurse Ratched. Uh, you know, Nurse Ratched. <laughs> not a you know, it's not. She's not the sort of pantomime villain in the way you think she's going to be. No, um, and um, which I think is great. But look, I mean, just look at this cast. You know, Christopher Lloyd, Danny DeVito, uh, Scatman Crothers, Brad Dourif. Who was also then, he was Oscar nominated for this movie as well. Yeah, and then of course Will Will Sampson um, playing Chief Bromden, who is um, we'll I mean his sort. oh my god, his performance in this film is so good. Anyway, that's my piece. What what about you? Is uh, did I miss anything? No, I mean uh, my little uh, bit of trivia about the film. Uh, Ken Kesey was in a hotel and he was kind of zapping through channels, and um, he came across a film and he started like ha- he got like about 15, 10 minutes into the film, and then he realized it was this movie, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which is an adaptation of his book. And he switched it off because I think he wasn't too happy with the adaptation of it. Because have you read the book? No, but I knew that Kesey wasn't, he didn't like what they'd done with it. Yeah, because the and, book um, is told from the perspective of Chief Bromden. Yeah. And it, and it, and it's a lot darker, you know, the, this film, you know, it, it follows the same sort of through line and it, it follows the same line, but there's a few little changes that they make and, but it does get to the same sort of destination. It's a great book. It's a wonderful book and, and, and worth reading. I also have his other book, Sometimes a Great Nation and another, and another book of his. Um, but yeah, no, Jack Nicholson is, is fantastic. It was like this, this, this role was made for him. And, you know, and if he, if he wasn't going to, you know, and if he didn't win the Oscar for five easy pieces in Chinatown, he was definitely going to win it for this one. I feel like in this point, he had to at least come out of this decade with an Oscar because this he was in his prime at this point. He was at the yeah. height, he was at the height of his powers before. I feel like he did fall into a little bit of pastiche slightly. I don't know that kind of like yes, that sort of so. like, hey, I'm Jack Nicholson. And that, you know, I think he was still an act a proper like great nuanced actor and i think once he kind of fell into that sort of jack nicholson persona i think he became less interesting i think the last great jack nicholson performance probably is maybe departed or as good as gets or yeah but even in those two he's playing jack nicholson yeah but i feel i think that i think i agree i don't i think you don't get near these performances again like easy rider Chinatown by easy five easy pieces is a fantastic performance. Yeah, which actually I've not seen. Um, oh, this one, I mean, so good. Yeah, I mean, it's not that I don't like him in The Departed or or, or um, as good as it gets. It's just that, yeah, but I think this is this is his iconic, his best and his most important uh, performance. And um, even though, of course, we still have to cover Mr. Gitz, but um, but that but that, right. the scene of him trying to get people to watch the the World Series, and you know, it's like yeah. that well, whole watching thing. It, watching the empty screen, yeah, and just yeah, I know, it just yeah. it's so amazing, and all the way that he he battles with Louise Fletcher, Nurse Ratchet, yeah. just I mean, that's like Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker. It's like you know, a huge battle of wits and status. It's so yeah, it's amazing. And that right. the ending so, scene of the film is so fucking tragic when like Chief Bromden hugs him. It's so fucking tragic. It's like it's like it's like it's like the the it's like cutting the cord of the human spirit in a lot of ways. And I mean, just looking at what what's happening now in the world, it's just that's just it's taking away a lot of people's aspects and, and, and ideals and freedom a little bit. And, that, and that's kind of what the movie 
kind of is maybe about i don't know it's i mean you have to read into it in a, in, a, in, in in so many ways yeah i mean i think yeah there's a lot there's a there's a hell of a lot to unpack and it's just at heart just such a such a good story and it's and and i think yeah we talk about jack nicholson but those scenes the group scenes are um are just masterful i mean the the the, all the actors involved in this are um you know putting putting you know career best i think most of the i think most of the background people in the asylum are actual mental patients like people who were mentally ill which i think adds to the authenticity of the film yeah i think and you could argue about whether that's um, exploitative or not to have actual, you know, patients in there. But um, but yeah, I mean, just it's such a rogues gallery of people, and and I I really like um, I really I just some of the like I don't know a lot of the other actors from, you know, like William Redfield for example, who actually died just after the film came out. You know, he's not someone I was that familiar with um, from other. Um, from other from other pictures um and, oh, he was um, in uh he was in death wish uh which uh, yeah uh, but like i had i didn't know him that well and then who's the guy with the the little guy with the glasses um oh sydney lassick he plays cheswick sydney lassick yeah i mean he's so he's also a great character actor he was in um he was in carrie he's been in a bunch of movies yeah i mean he's he's w- wonderful um so um there's a great so, yeah. scene. There's a great scene. That's a great scene of tension when he's asking Nurse Ratchet, Nurse for Ratchet, the for the for the for the cigarettes and the whole yeah. build up to the that oh. whole scene is amazing. Yeah, and no, yes, and yes, it was Milos Forman's first American picture. Not a bad way to begin. No, it in is America, not. That is, um, and of course, later on we get Amadeus and lots of other exciting things. Okay, um, what's next? Is it? It's well, it's, it's, it's your me, number four. I... It's your number four. Uh, the last. The Last Picture Show, uh, Peter Bogdanovich. Um, yes, the late great Peter Bogdanovich. Um, I think I just think this film is is sublime. I mean, it's again, it's it's um, it doesn't, it's not there to uh, entertain you or put you in the, you know, maybe in the most elated mood. Uh, it's a sad film about a sad community full of sad people. Fucking bleak. That's one way. Filmed in black and white. Yeah, but it has. It has some of the most gorgeous depictions of, you know, ordinary people who have who live in a in a in a in in a sad small town corner of America who are just hung up on either old memories or you know the ordinary sort of mundane bitternesses and jealousies of being adolescent, um, full of great actors. But for me, I mean, as a fan of John Ford movies and old westerns, you know. Ben Johnson's performance as, Sta- as Sam the Lion, which he won the Oscar for in this, is just st- for me still one of the great um, uh, pieces of unexpected movie acting. You know, Ben Johnson was not a great actor necessarily, and uh, he was not a trained actor. You know, he was a, 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 st- a cowboy stuntman, yeah. And that Bogdanovich identifies that he had this within him, puts him in this movie, and gets this incredible um you know uh display of of uh charisma and and pathos and poignancy out of him is um is and and you know without ben johnson having to do anything that he can't do already you know he's just himself but yeah he invests it with so much 
um, yeah, and it's just this immortal performance. And then on the other side of it, you've got Cloris Leachman, who won the, they both won supporting actor Oscars for the film, and she's mm. uh, brilliant. And yeah, all the young people in the film are good too. Um, Timothy Bottoms, uh, Jeff Bridges, Sybil Shepherd, who also had a, well, Peter Bogdanovich, you know, famously went, you know, he had an affair with Sybil Shepherd and left Polly Platt, his uh, collaborator, yes. which um, yeah. there's a really good, uh, you must remember this, uh, sort of story about uh, a few episodes about Polly Platt and Peter Bogdanovich. Oh, that's interesting. I, I, I'd like to listen to that. I, it's so funny how that keeps happening in Hollywood, isn't it? That these directors um, leave their spouses for these film stars. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and the, I mean, that leaving that aside, it is still a, 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 a great, you know, great set of performances from the young people in the film. Jeff Bridges, obviously, most kind of notably, I guess. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, there's not that much to say. It's really just, it's um, it's that, again, it's that marriage of excellent cinematography, music, performances, and writing with yeah. an awareness. And this is what I think makes the 70s so particular is that there's this hyper-awareness of what's come before in terms of filmmaking. Because you've got yeah. these kids, you know, these directors who've all been to film school. And so they're, they're peppering their movies with, not just like references and callbacks, but just the sort of the language of older movies that it just yeah. adds this base note of um, of um, of richness to the to the telling of these stories. So, um, so I'm I'm just I'm, every time I watch the film, I'm I'm agog. I think it's. Uh, I definitely uh, need to see this film again as. Because when I watched, I think the first time I watched it was as a teenager, and I feel like I liked it, but maybe I didn't appreciate it as much as I think as I would now. So I'll definitely watch it again. And the cinematographer, I, one, I definitely, I definitely want you. I think you appreciate more as you get older, for sure. Yeah, I think the the cinematographer on that film was Robert Surtees, who did Ben Hur and The Bad, The Beautiful, and The Sting. Yeah, yeah, so he's an interesting, interesting career. Yeah. Uh, also, I mean, well, Peter. Yeah, Dubrovnik didn't do that many good films. I mean, he's obviously this is the one he's most remembered for. There's Paper Moon and stuff. But it's not like you know, this is it's not like a canon. He never of, quite of... got back to the high point that he had with like Paper Moon and What's Up Doc and this. He never quite yeah. got back after that. He didn't... Yeah, even though he made he made films for a long time, it's just yeah, uh, but nothing it's, quite. It's like he maybe he shouldn't have left Polly Platt. Hmm? Yeah, I mean, he did a movie with Sybil Shepherd called Daisy Miller, where she was like the main character, and were, that's part of um, Easy Rider, Raging Bulls, uh, Easy, Easy, the book, the Peter Biskin book. And apparently, after that film, it was like just he never got back after that. He never had the success that he had with his early films. It's so weird, isn't it? And you just think when you look at a film like this, and you're like, how could this guy not just make endless good movies? But maybe it's just that sometimes it's it, it's obviously also collaborative, but you know, sometimes the planets yeah. just align. So. Yeah. But anyway, he did his... have a quite he did have a fairly successful acting career because he did play uh, in The Sopranos as um, Dr. Melfi's psychiatrist. Yes, very very good in that too. Right, number three. Yeah, my number three is the really the well one of the 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 one, the second horror film that gets on my list, um, and that is William Friedkin's The Exorcist. Oh right, yes, I thought this would crop up at some point. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I sort of, I, I played around with having Halloween and Black Christmas and a bunch of other horror films, but it just, I feel like The Exorcist, that, for me, that is like the best horror film of this decade. And also that, again, a huge blockbuster hit. That was a monster hit. Like, but also just like, I mean, like we were, I mean, I, 
imagine you know being a cinema goer going to see the exorcist and just seeing oh God, all yeah. these moments you know all the special effects all the makeup the dick smith makeup and linda blair's performance and all the like just the real old school horror aspects of that film is just incredible like the first time it's i watched super it's super creepy it's so creepy. creepy it's amazingly yeah. creepy it still gets me every time i watch that film anytime when she's up in the attic and the ca- and the candle blows up it still makes me jump it's it's so it, it it's amazingly effective i mean i i mean william friedkin i can imagine he's a very a bit of a let's say you know, a bit problematic. I don't know. On this film, he was a little. He would like occasionally fire a gun to get people's reactions. Oh my god! Yeah, and then like sort of Sam Fuller esque. Yeah, and he he um that sort of carried on later into his films because he was a bit of a renegade. And you know, the, the, like you know, if you look at like the French Connection with that car chase, like there's like there's no shutting down the streets. They're actually like literally filming a fucking car chase, <laughs> and. Uh, you know, he was a real, he was a real go, let's go for it kind of filmmaker, which you really don't get yeah. these days. I mean, he, I mean, the source, sorcerer, again, look at that, like the, what he did with that film as well, like putting yeah. people in the jungle. He did apocalypse. Well, this is, isn't this, isn't this something of what gets lost in the seventies as well? Is I think that these directors, and and maybe this is a good thing. I mean, we talk, I talk a lot about what we lose because of Star Wars and stuff, but also I think that it's possible that you could argue that directors at this time had too much power, and I think if you're a bully, like it sounds like Friedkin was, or, you know, a dictatorial megalomaniac or, or just, you know, perfectionist like Chimino was and, and or, you know, driven to, to the point of mania like Coppola was. Like, it might be good to just like curb that a little bit. I mean, even though you get great artistry out of it, it feels like a lot, you know, a lot of people having heart attacks and taking drugs and getting really messed up because of these, you know, the stress of being involved in these films. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there weren't, you know, so... I don't know, like maybe there is a price to be paid for art. It, it's a question to to ask, but um, I mean, you can't deny The Exorcist is an incredible film. But um, also, it's not just like it's a it's 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 a well written film. Like it's written by William Peter Blatty. He's adapting his own book. He started off as a comedy writer, which is I think hilarious. Um, and he manages to you know write a film. It's not just you know. There's a lot of aspects thrown into this movie. It's a movie about you know faith. You know questioning one's faith and you know trying you know you know father Karras, jason miller's character is a man who's questioning his own faith he's the only he's the guy who goes through like he's the only character that goes through like a real arc throughout the film i mean ellen burston is kind of on a same wavelength of trying to find out what is going on with her daughter and i mean of course her performance is amazing as is linda blair's performance and just, yeah, we get, I remember when we did the alternative Oscars for what year did it come out? Um, 1973 or five. I'm gonna just, um, yeah, we, we 73, we, yeah, it was 73. Yeah, we gave it quite a lot of, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, um, it is a treat of a film. Um, so yeah, again, a film that did spawn a franchise. Yeah, this, uh, and, and, and we're getting a yeah. fucking new one which is being directed by David Gordon Green, who did the recent Halloween films. And I'm not looking forward to seeing what that film is going to be like, given how the last Halloween film he did. I'm not, I mean, again, Ellen Burstyn and Linda Blair are going to be in the film. And the only reason Ellen Burstyn, the only reason Ellen Burstyn was in the film was so that she could use the payment that she got for the film to fund an acting program. What, this one? For, For the new one that's been made. 
Oh, for the new one that's going to make. Well, yeah, that seems like a pretty. I feel like there are other ways to. I mean, you could just apply for fellow. I mean, grants or whatever foundations. Anyway, well, it's, no. it's it's her. Oh, don't, it's, not going to tell you how to run your program that she's you know making or something. Or yeah, I know. I'm, I'm sure there. Are, I'm sure there are other ways, as I say, of raising the cash. Um. So, uh, number three. Your number three. My number three is Serpico, directed by Sidney Lumet. Yeah, another great New York thriller cop movie. Is it on your list? Uh, no, it is not on my list. Okay, great. Um, I feel like we're having less overlap than we thought, which is um, good. Um, uh, and probably means that we're running long. Anyway, I'll try and keep it short. Serpico is a film about police corruption and Frank Serpico, real life uh, cop um, who and whistleblower, um, you know, tries to bring this uh, corruption to light and fight it, and he pays with his, you know, sanity, you might say, or career or whatever. And uh, you know, at the heart of it is um, the, and I will not hear any arguments against this, the greatest performance by Al Pacino, I think. Yes. Um, and even though um, we still haven't talked about Michael Corleone. Uh, he he's he's so so good in Serpico, uh, which is as you say like a great great New York film as well, um, and it's got such heart and soul too. I mean, it's not just a procedural cop thing; it's got such um, beauty in it, and so much of that is due to the music by Mikis Theodorakis, um, who is more, mostly known for doing the Zorba the Greek theme, but who conjures this sort of operatic godfather style kind of mandolin driven italian sounding um theme that plays um in in key scenes in this film as long as some like really lovely kind of low-key jazzy stuff and and um it's just um i i remember thinking you know coming into the film knowing it was going to be an interesting performance knowing it was going to be an exciting sort of thriller but didn't i didn't know how beautiful it was going to be how how um how evocative it was going to feel um and um yeah you talk about character study and stuff like that i mean this this is um this is right up there isn't it with um you know with feel you know with like lawrence of arabia and things like that and from a from a really good director too i mean sydney lumet um has um you know a ton of films on his cv including 12 angry men and he's you know got a couple of other films that you could legitimately put forward as other top 10 candidates for the 1970s like dog day afternoon and um that's another yeah. concept yeah uh so, but i i just think serpico for me um is um is the top of the heap and i've i've really tried on this list to not repeat directors which is why the conversation isn't on my list um yeah, yeah, yeah. and which is why i've um you know only picked um, you know, I've, I've really tried to spread it out, and uh, but 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 yeah, Cindy Lumet is another one of those like Coppola, like uh, Scorsese, even who could have multiple films in the top ten. It's just this is how impossible it is to pick things from this decade. But I think the good thing about um, Serpico is that even along with those other films, you know, they some of them have flaws. Twelve Angry Men is a bit kind of um, social it science feels, class, feels like a stagey play, kind of yeah network is 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 kind of mental and um you know this this feels like a really just excellent perfect flawless film full of all the right things yeah i could i would highly recommend if you're into film history and also just or just not film history but filmmaking i would recommend sydney lumet's book making movies 
Ooh, okay. Yeah, will, uh... and there's a very interesting part where he talks about his sort of beginning before he gets to set, and he's like, "I get, a, I get my crossword, I get my, cr- I get my croissant, my pastry, I, d- I get, I do that, and then I go to set, and then I talk." And this like is, how... yeah. So I like, I, I like, I like croissants and crosswords, and uh, that's, I feel like, a good, a good start to any day. Yeah. Um, that's how we... number two. No, my, right? my, my, so wait, where is Chinatown on your list? Um, number two. Oh, my number two is The Godfather. Right. So my number. What? Wait. <laughs> this is complicated. So my number two is The Godfather is also on my list. Yeah, <laughs> but it's at number one. So <laughs> my number two is Chinatown. Where was Chinatown on your list? My chi- Chinatown was at number five on my list. Right, forget it, Jake. It's number five. Uh, so what's the thing to do here? We've got to talk about Chinatown. We've got to talk about The Godfather. What's your number one? Uh, what do you want to guess? Well, we've had The Godfather. Oh, Star Wars. Nope. Jaws. Yes. Okay, great. All right. Let's do it like this. Um, let's start with Chinatown. And then let's... Um, Jaws is not on my list, incredibly, actually. What the fuck? That's one How of my is favorite. Jaws not on your list? I don't understand why something desperately wrong has happened. One of the most important films of the decade. Like, how does that, that not make your list? But, also, but this is what's so stupid about this is, yes, I agree. It's one of the most important films of the decade. It's also one of my very favorite films. Yeah. So I just fucked up. It's I an just... amazing movie. I mean, it's not okay. just... Yeah. Let's, talk, let's do it this way. Let's talk about Chinatown. Then we'll talk about The Godfather. Then we'll talk about Jaws. Yes. And then everyone can go home. Yeah. Right. Chinatown. Yes. Talk about the film noir genre being brought back to life. And you'd see, maybe I shouldn't have had the long goodbye on there. Maybe I should have been. Look, it's really hard to do this list, people. Okay. Just <laughs> Jesus Christ, give us a fucking break. Um, it's like really getting inside baseball right now. <laughs> I just think, I think people are just turning off in droves. I mean, this is, a, this is a terrible podcast. Um, the um, <laughs> Chinatown is updating the film noir genre to the 70s except it's actually set in the 30s um it is robert town and roman polanski collaborating and nearly killing each other um to produce a film of uncommon um just like grippingness and effectiveness you know it's so the history um, of los angeles right and it's like again it's it's a period film you know, it's set 40 years before, but everything is perfect. The cars, the costumes, um, the the dialogue, um, the cinematography, the music, you know, it, it you know, talk, when you look at LA Confidential, which is a similar movie, and they were the same, you know, a lot of similar people involved. I think the same guy did the music, right? Um, uh, yeah, Jerry Goldsmith, that's true. Jerry Goldsmith, yeah. So it's just not the same. It's a good film, but it's nowhere near as effective as as Chinatown and I think what makes Chinatown ultimately so brilliant is that the central um message the central crime well there's two real crimes in this film and both of them are horrific yeah like the the crime of the corruption that affects an entire um city and an entire state just to fill the pockets of some greedy man represented by um uh Noah Cross played by um played with relish and with skill by John Houston. Um there's that crime. And then there's of course the crime that he's responsible for 
on the more personal level, which I won't spoil here, which is also, and both of these things go hand in hand to drive the film. And I think what's unusual for a film noir is normally at the end of a film noir, you're like, well, I'm glad we got the bad guys so that we could break up the syndicate or whatever. It's like in this film, the bad guys are responsible for more <laughs> evil, it feels like, than most of the sort of hard-boiled detective films that we yeah. watch. And they get away with it. Yeah, there's no happy ending in this movie. And that's and that's what, again, talking about how the 70s kind of make us think about American culture and American politics, that cynicism, that sense of like... Yeah, that sort of Watergate, pre-post-Watergate yeah. America, Vietnam. Well, and also like at the time when, you know, the country is also being more and more ruled by... Um, you know corporations and whatnot and and by you know more and more wealth inequality is you know are having you know as the further we get from the new deal the, and the closer we get to kind of our own time of like absurd corporate yeah. power and, and and um and and wealth um inequality as i say like it's not you know this this film feels like such an important um uh you know examination of that tendency while also um looking at some of the historical roots of it yeah um and and yeah those are just like just on the on the just purely like leaving all the political bullshit aside just like on a purely like film level like what a what a movie like yes we've talked about jack nicholson's performance in one flew of the cuckoo's nest he's also great here they done away fantastic in this they done away should have won her oscar for this film not network in my opinion um sure. Everyone let's save that for uh, uh the alternative oscars yeah don't no, get out of that mindset um and uh, and of course i mentioned john houston i mean it's just oh it's just so uh it's it's, it's, it's i mean i'm i'm glad that robert town won best original screenplay for this movie but i do feel like this is one of those movies that should have just raked up so many more oscars than it should have done did you say raked up raked up okay raked in raked in yeah Right. Um, um, I meant, you know, taken in more Oscars than it should have. Been. Yes, yes, yes. I think we know what you meant. You just lost the ability to speak. Um, I, um, Sorry. I agree. It, uh, but it, it, you know, it did, it did, it did, it did best picture after all. Yeah. Um, well, don't forget Bob Evans. You know, he produced. You know, he was like head of Paramount, produced this movie as well, and also, yeah, and also uh, Marathon Man, and also The Godfather, which I guess we should segue to. Um, I guess just a quick. Quick note, quick note on uh, Polanski and Town though is that for all of Town's writing, it's still Polanski that made one of the main decisions, uh, which makes this film good, which is to uh, make the ending what it was. Um, but The Godfather, um, what is there left to say about The Godfather uh, that we haven't already covered, that we haven't said elsewhere? I think it's like when you look at a lot of filmmakers who, you know, Francis Ford Coppola, this is like the point where, like, I mean, he had made movies beforehand, but nothing on this scale. And I think in the way that he was a young, late in his late 20s, he had a family, you know, he had he needed a job. He fought hard for Al Pacino. He fought hard for Marlon Brando, like every aspect yeah. of this movie. You just feel the filmmaker's passion. I mean, today. He's making his he's he's got a new film on the way with Adam Driver, his passion project Megalopolis, which is also a film that has had budget problems and he's had to finance it himself. And I'm just thinking, wow, that's a lot of wine that he had to sell to finance that big, right, big right. and firing crew members and getting in new people. It's like I'm amazed that movie actually has got made and is now wrapped. But anyway, that's another thing. But this movie is 
again, it's fantastic. It's, uh, you know, you, we're, we're set into the world of the mafia, the, 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 the mafia, <laughs> as I said. Well, well, yes, the mafia, um, the mob. Um, the American dream, American history to be, you know, Italian in, in America. Yeah, I mean, it's, talk about, you know, you've mentioned Rocky before. I mean, like, there really is, this is such an interesting pair with, with that story, you know, of like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and like the the immigrant story i guess it's like here it is looking at how you can export a almost sort of medieval form of being in the world of you know this kind of patriarchal gangster system of uh, violence and protection and corruption uh, and export that to america and how well it sits in america and ultimately again like how much this you know, I think one of the central messages of the whole Godfather franchise, and of course, when I talk about the Godfather here, I'm, you know, I do think, you know, in an ideal world, you'd also put the Godfather two in a top ten list because it's as good practically yeah, as the yeah. first one. Um, but if there's a central theme across both of them, it is that we're all part of the same hypocrisy. I mean, I think that's the key. I think that's the line that people forget in in these movies from the second film that this is. The, the America that that, it, that Vito Corleone is exploiting is one which he sees that his own role is being perfectly fit for. You know, he's yeah. not he's not seeing himself as somehow anomalous to this American system. He feels that actually this American system is made for the likes of him, and that he's using it as he should. You know, that this is a a world of of money and power and. Um, and family ties and and you only have to look at who was president you know a few years ago and um and the way he runs his um affairs to see just how true that is um and um and i just love how out of the genre again looking back you know this is another film that looks back to old hollywood you know it takes the the gangster genre that always felt like it was sort of almost akin to a Western. It's like, this is a very limited world, those very specific areas. And it takes this genre and it makes this huge point about America. And then also makes it about one family and makes it a family drama. And there's just like so many layers to it. And there's so many um, glorious things that it has to say. And that's before you get to all the technical stuff, all the brilliant acting and the music and everything you know that we could keep going but everyone knows everyone knows about that already we've talked about that already but i really think that like if we're looking at this as like representative of something about the 70s i don't think you could get much more um true to kind of what we've been talking about all episode this idea of like how this decade reshaped cinema um and um you know i'm glad that we've not had a godfather franchise per se but we have had you know a relatively good relatively successful paramount series about the making of the godfather but also let's not forget we've had the sopranos which wouldn't exist without the godfather yeah, the sopranos yeah. is 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 the you know the the same story told a different way um and um told in a completely different climate right and and it's just but it's the same vernacular of like or the same approach of saying okay we're going to make this ultimately about individuals, family, and we're going to make a point about America. We're not going to say this is a, these are, a, you know, these gangsters, these hoodlums are an anomaly in America. We're going to say they're actually representative of America and we're going to examine how that's true. So, um, yeah, and 
the godfather is just stunningly uh important in terms of just how we um approach the whole genre how we how we think about how um how movies can examine american culture i mean that's what's so interesting again you know like here's a bunch of guys who are making films who have been to film school and are therefore highly film literate but they're also sort of culturally literate mm. and i think you know politically these films are among the most interesting and you know maybe the most interesting in, in american history yeah but also it's like a great should, uh... oh sorry what? No, i just want to say like it's a great character study as well like in the way it's not just like it you know when you go into this film because it is marlon brando whose face is on the poster it's not al pacino it's like you think you're going to go see a film where like it's marlon brando's you know he's the star and he's going to be in the whole film and then it turns into an al pacino film and it's a it's a origin story to to how michael corleone becomes the gangster the il padrino the godfather and you know it's he's so you know when it's such a great performance of how he manages to portray a man who's like i don't want anything to do with my family and by the end of the film he's become exactly who he said he wasn't going to be at the the beginning of the film and he's completely changed and we see more of that in the second film and how dark and how less of a human he becomes and i think that is an amazing performance yeah, I mean, it is, um, you know, when I say Serpico's his best performance, it's like, you know, this, <laughs> it's like potato, potato, like, take your pick. He picks, he gives us in the 70s a handful of the greatest performances that a screen actor has ever given, whether it's this film, Dog Day Afternoon, Serpico. Yeah. I mean, he's, it's in this, it, the decision to stick with Pacino was an important one. Now, we have really run long here, so I think we should just knock this on the head and, and talk about Jaws before we let everyone leave yeah yeah i mean i have to say like i mean every time i watch jaws i just i'm i'm amazed at just how much it's a great movie but it's it's so much more than a monster film about a shark terrorizing a small town there's so much more under the surface i mean of course like there's figuratively and literally um it's such a fun film it's so much fun it like it's a horror film but it's also like a you know men on a mission it turns into a men on a mission movie in the second half of the film and and i just you know you you really like i mean just hearing all the production stories about how it was so cold while they were filming out martha's vineyard and how the shark didn't work and how they used that to their advantage and just like you know the the panache and the tenacity of steven spielberg to fight through it you know as a young filmmaker i think is incredible and also it's just right. it's and again w- again like you go down the list you see so many instances of that like films that had to really fight to get made and get made the way they were and all these you know people being taking big chances and having a lot of faith put in them you know jaws is definitely an example of that and i love by the way that you know my list of sort of cinematography heavy contemplative films ends with the godfather and your list of entertaining like you know punch the air awesome movie cinematic like joy rides ends with yeah. jaws i think it's a great pair this these lists and i think they show what's fantastic about the 70s that there's just so many brilliant films to choose from across this decade and and jaws and it's funny that star wars didn't crop up on either of our lists i mean i yeah. really think you could have you know just as easily have finished this list with star wars but jaws is special and why it's it's really hard to tell sometimes why exactly it's so special but 
um, because it's sort of simplistic in some ways, you know, yeah. and, and, and it's hokey. Um, it's Spielberg, you know, Spielberg, as good as he is, has this corniness in him that he can never shake. He no, has this Capra, yeah. Capra quality, you know, that makes him almost a bit of an outlier in the 70s. Like, there's no cynicism in Spielberg. There's no political um, outrage, really. I mean, you know, maybe you could talk about a little bit in this film with the character of the mayor, but not that much. Like, it's yeah, really- he, he can't. He can't be cynical. I don't. I mean, if he, you know, when he no. really, he can't. I mean, it's funny. Like, I was listening to a podcast and they were talking about um the pol- poltergeist which is the film that he wrote the screenplay for and there's the whole like conspiracy theory did he direct it or did toby hooper direct it and it's like he he couldn't have directed poltergeist it's like it's completely a dark film even though it does have those kind of hokiness to it but it's so dark and it's so disturbing he probably couldn't have directed it. he would have like done like a raiders of the lost ark type film but set in a suburban house in a, haun- a haunted house film set in suburban america it still manages to be like a suspenseful film, Jaws, but yeah, it does have a lot of that hammy, not hammy, but like, you know, sweet, you know, corny moments that we see in a lot of Spielberg's movies. Yeah, it's all about like the guy who's just trying to do well for his community and his family and there's humour and there's like a sense of adventure and magic, even in this, like with the shooting star and stuff. Yeah. Like, there's just like, there's little things in jaws that like i don't you know like i don't doubt for a second that you know the 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 blood and the death and the and the horror is real in that sense of like this is a really you know the stakes are really high but he's not saying anything particularly profound about the human condition but what he just gives us is a world-class entertainment like a film that you can sit down and watch anytime anywhere and still enjoy it. Like, I don't know how many times I've seen Jaws, but it's at least, what, seven or eight. And I'm yeah, going to watch yeah. it about seven or eight times, 10, 20 times before I die, probably. And it's like, it is it is just always great to come back to. And not in the way that like, oh, I could watch, I don't know, The Guns of Navarone over and over again. Because that's like, that's got to do with it being like a childhood favorite stuff. It's like, no, 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 this is it. The reason I can watch this again and again and again is because it's so bloody well made. Yeah. And it's so enjoyable to go through the roller coaster ride of watching this again and it's so enjoyable to meet quint and see the shark you know stalking its helpless prey and have the guy go a what and you know like all this stuff like <laughs> the head popping out of the boat it's still yeah, the head, the fucking, it's just yeah even it's, when i know even when i know it's coming it yeah. still makes me jump <laughs> yeah and that every single time so no i i think it's glorious look but now it, we've been recording for fucking ages and I have to go. So can we can we knock this on the head and just yeah, quickly... Yeah, 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 let's knock it on the head. Should we just round out through our list very quickly? Yeah, you go Yeah, you go first. Okay, so number 10, Alien. Number 9, Taxi Driver. Number 8, Rocky. Number 7, uh, The Poseidon Adventure. Number 6, Young Frankenstein. Number 5, Chinatown. Number 4, One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. Number 3, The Exorcist. Number 2, The Godfather. Number 1, Jaws. For me, it was number 10, Duck You Sucker. Number 9, The American Friend. Number 8, The Days of Heaven. Sorry, Days of Heaven. Number seven, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Number six, Barry Lyndon. Number five, The Long Goodbye. Number four, The Last Picture Show. Number three, Serpico. Number two, Chinatown. And number one, The Godfather. Honorable mentions, of course, for Jaws and all the other things I missed. Yeah, uh, yeah there are 
tons of tons of films i could have i wish i could have put yeah. in there let's go everyone knows where to find us um, yes we don't need to go through the whole that uh, all through that whole uh nonsense but anyway yeah thank you so much for listening to us i hope you've stayed with us through this very gargantuan recording <laughs> of us talking about movies from the 1970s but i guess that means that shows how much we really love this, these movies and this decade so yeah, yeah. I hope so. Um, we'll try and keep it more concise for the 1960s, I guess, although I'm not sure we're going to be able to do that, but let's see. We'll see. Yeah. I do think the 60s will be easier, though. Yeah, I think so. I think. So. I don't think I'll have as much trouble picking a top 10. I think the 70s is almost uniquely difficult, but uh, we'll see how... I think also the 40s are going to be tough for me. Anyway, let's go. Yes. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Have a good day.